Welcome to Semaphore and Cut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, we're excited to welcome Arlo Belshi. I'm a you know, dyed-in-the-wall developer who's been uh, all over companies from tiny little uh, startups to big enterprises, you know, Microsoft and so on. And throughout all of that time, I've really come to one clear mission, which is I want to eliminate bugs in the software industry. I uh, originally started as a developer uh, and introduced extreme programming to my team back in 99 or 2000, uh, right around when the original book was getting written, and had the good fortune of being on a team with a experimental physicist Uh, so he really drove us to tiny iterations where we tried everything and refined our practice. And we knew that it worked. So anytime that it failed, we assumed we were wrong and we tried more and to be more extreme. And the result was fantastic, amazing success. And then eventually learned when I encountered the XP community uh, three years later, that what we had done was a more disciplined approach than Ward and the others were writing about, <laughs> according to Ward. Uh, so I then started talking about it at conferences. So from that, when I was at Microsoft, I really hit on, with them, they really hit on this concept of backwards compatibility, which they take to an absolute extreme. Uh, you will not fix a bug that's been there for 15 years because someone somewhere is depending on it. So you instead make it so that you'll fix it for future people, but that one customer gets to keep that bug, right? And they're really, really skilled at navigating this bug-for-bug -bug compatibility. Microservices architecture is all the rage these days. But do you know what it really means and how to implement it to empower your teams to make the best decision for the problem at hand? On the Semaphore blog, you can learn about microservices and how to take advantage of features like test reports, on a repo, and Docker support to build, test, and deploy your microservice application at scale. Head over to semaphoreci.com slash blog for more information. A happy reading. Can you maybe describe what typical situation in the team which you are working with and uh, has it changed over the years? I find that companies that are still searching for market fit, honestly, the code base isn't slowing them down that much. They may be slowing them down, but it's not slowing them down critically and bugs certainly aren't. Because they're still looking for fit, when they discover that something isn't working, they tend to throw it out anyway. Uh, it, it's not actually aligning with what the customer wants. And so they don't uh, end up building piles and piles of technical debt. Uh, but at some point, a company finds market fit, and then it starts growing. And so once they've found fit, they now need to maintain some aspect of their system while changing other aspects of their system. And that's where things get interesting. And then they're doing that while growing. And so the first the first product was built by one team and that team owned everything. And so all interactions, no matter where they went in the code, were within the team. As soon as they grow, they split to two teams and then to four teams and then however big they grow. Every time they split, effectively they cleave the code base because they have teams that own different responsibilities. And so now code that used to call other code within a team's responsibility is calling across a team boundary. And those team boundaries don't exist in the code yet because the code was written assuming one team or two teams or however much. And so there's, there's this stress placed on the system where suddenly was okay and even advantageous before, you know, have everything directly call what it needs so that we can rapidly change it and find the market fit is now a problem because that results in huge contention between teams and spooky action at a distance and bugs and bugs and bugs and all the integration problems that we all know and hate. So I work with teams that have gone through that transition. And the problem is that the set of habits and norms that 
made us very successful before that transition are exactly the things that cause problems in that transition. And no team can just on a dime magically transform its culture to be a 180 reversal of what it has been. Right. Um, so it takes them several years to even realize that they have a problem, uh, to start making those changes. Uh, often a, a leadership change happens around that time and is a necessary part of changing that culture. What are maybe some um, advices that you would give to, to the leadership, which is, you know, now in charge and they are embarking on that journey? They are going to go from, let's say, 30 to 130 engineers in the next 12 to 18 months. So from a leadership perspective, the first failure that I see people often make is to, to try and identify, here's the new North Star. And it's actually the first shift is that we've shifted from when going after market fit, one North Star is a huge competitive advantage because it helps us run those experiments. But once we've found market fit and we're trying to grow, one North Star gets in the way. And so what we need to start looking at now is dynamic self-adapting systems that are going simultaneously in multiple directions at once. And in fact, often competing with each other, like where it's going in two opposing directions at the same time. And then one of those is going to die. And somehow the whole system and all the people involved are going to transition, right? So that's the first part is to start shifting away from North Star direction, clear guidance, and into this adapting system that's going in multiple directions at once. And that's a, a fundamental leadership shift. It's very challenging to do. And it's not just the exec who changes there. They have to change 180. But everyone underneath, all the way down to the individual developer, changes significantly to adapt that. That results in a tremendous distribution of ownership away from what has been a directive visionary founder to the whole team. You said multiple directions that might end up, you know, working against each other and, you know, competing and all of that. And um, I have some ideas what those might be, but uh, maybe some uh, listeners might be guessing the same way that, that I do. Can you give uh, some examples? Sure. Um, so one very specific example, uh, this is from a company that I was working at that had already gone through that transition. So they had 130 teams. They'd broken the group into 130 different uh, scrum teams, they called them, but it was, you know, like six, eight, ten people on, on a team. Right. So total of around a thousand developers. And we were working with those teams to figure out uh, what the technical debt problems were and what they needed to work on and so on. And uh, at one point, uh, my partner, uh, transition partner, collaborator there uh, had a brilliant idea of really getting some data and analyzing it and so on. We went and surveyed each team and asked them what were the top three uh, obstacles to going to frequent deployments and frequent deliveries, code-based, cultural, whatever they were. Uh, what were the top three that were in their control that they needed to do something about? Maybe they needed some resources. Maybe they were already working on it, but just that there were theirs. And what were the top three that were in the context that they needed someone else to deal with it because they're impacted, but they, it's out of their control, right? And we ran it together, put together the data, clustered and everything. The thing that had the greatest number of teams voting for it had six teams. Out of 130, the largest one had six. The median had one, which means that more than half of the things that were the major obstacles blocking teams, they blocked exactly one 130th of the team. So there was no direction that leadership could give that would be right because anything you state at best is a correct answer for six of your 130 teams. And for the other 124, it's irrelevant, right? And then it's really interesting when we looked at the six, because the six was related to unit testing, which is not surprising that that's the, the top one there. We found that 
Uh, four teams identified the problem as theirs. Two teams identified the problem as not theirs. The difficulty with unit t- testing was because other teams' code impacts prevented them from doing it. Right, So they needed other teams to have it solved. Of the four teams that were doing it local, they split. And uh, two of those teams identified the problem as having too few tests and that they what they needed to do was add tests. And the other two identified the problem as having too many tests because they were uh, integration tests and, and so on, and what they needed to do was remove tests. So from a leadership perspective, even if I chose the one that's the top thing, I'm going to have two teams that say, yeah, it's not my problem, go solve it elsewhere. Two teams that say, for which I should set a goal of increased tests, and two teams that I should set a goal of decreased tests. And that's typical, right? All the other items on that list were common. And when I've gone to other companies, I've seen the same sort of patterns. And so you can't pick a North Star. There's no direction as a leader that you can say that will look anything but foolish. <laughs> so it's, it's all about empowering the group to identify the problems locally and address them. Then there's the challenge of once we've had that insight of we need to make a self-adapting system, how do I grow that at my company? Like, how do I actually create that? You know, I can't just wave a wand and say, okay, I've had ownership for a year. I now give ownership to you. Take it. <laughs> it doesn't work, right? Because <laughs> we've got structures, we've got uh, skills, we've got habits and norms that are all built around our current assumption of where good ideas come from and of how we collaborate, right? And we need to decompose those and change those around. Currently, innovation in the company is defined by everybody brings funny things they see to the visionary who is the brilliant visionary going this way. And that person integrates it all and identifies where to go and makes choices. And at this point, we start exceeding the scale of the visionary to understand what's going on. They can't get it all in detail. And we start exceeding the time requirement um, that gather that information, get a choice and act on it takes too long because we've got too many people coming at it. So there's a bottlenecking problem. So we need to distribute all that decision-making. And that requires a shift in ownership. To do that shift in ownership, we need to do a couple of things. One is, this is where it's really, really key to be doing the agile, iterative, whatever practices you have there. And keep on your frequent deployments. And most importantly, keep demos. Because demos I find to be the thing which is the pole in the system that pulls everything out. And so keep doing those demos, doing them to the founders, whatever, but start demoing to broader groups. So that will also start shifting the power dynamics. Instead of everyone seeing the visionary founder as their customer, they start seeing each other as their customers and start thinking about, well, I'm really building this authentication system, authentication authorization. All right, then the people that are my real customers are the security folk. So I need to talk to them, <laughs> I need to demo to them all the time, right? Um, or, you know, so on and so forth. So start having this crossing web of demos to each other. And as you start to do that, uh, you'll start to rethink who and how you deploy to. And that'll that'll start making some shifts there. So that's that's one of the first structures to really get in place. Another support for that is to start doing the various comes from the DevOps community originally, but the, the operational review meetings where you've got you come together regularly and after an issue and you talk about what's going on and the metrics and the issues and what you're seeing and what the responses and preventions have been. And the key is that the leader in that again shifts their role. Prior when it was a small group, people were bringing problems to that person and it was a problem-solving session. Now, people are bringing solutions 
that have already been enacted. And it's a pattern matching session. And so the leader's job is no longer to ever solve a problem. And in fact, when asked what they would do, they need to be very clear and say, I expect that you would have already implemented the solution. Now let's talk, let's look at the gaps and why you weren't able to, and let's solve those gaps. Can you give us an overview of what are some of the ways that you help teams? Teams these days generally know how to write tests. They know how to build pipelines. They know how to deploy to clouds. They know how to do all of these sorts of things. But there's one skill that a team needs that prior experience of the company to that point has not taught them. And that is bug for bug compatibility. That gets back to that Microsoft thing. That is, how do I change code in a way that I don't just believe is going to be safe, but in a way that I can guarantee will not accidentally fix a bug that I don't know exists, maintains full backwards compatibility, including for behaviors that I don't know about. And that's a whole new level of proof. And this is what refactoring is all about. When Fowler limited the set of transforms to saying, we're only going to do these things, which according to the laws of the programming language, uh, the rules of the language are equivalent. Like when I extract a method, then those set of changes that can happen are very narrow. Depending on the language, it might or might not have lifetime control issues. It might or might not have a uh, performance shift but it won't change a whole bunch of other things, right? It won't change scoping of variables as long as everything was already scoped before. It won't change dot, 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 right? And so you can use those refactorings to start constructing these provable transformations. And that, that's the key set of skills. I call it disciplined refactoring. It's how to really change code to start making it testable, to start introducing those boundaries between teams, to start all of the problems that we've been talking about here to address them, you need to shift the code. You need to start isolating things. You need to start separating things. And disciplined refactoring is the key ability to do that. And the industry has sort of picked up TDD, but hasn't really picked up refactoring as much. And the problem is TDD limits you to working on the code as it is. And it only makes the code, it doesn't make the code any better. It makes the code clearer and it shows you where you have problems. But then you can't write a good test TDD doesn't help you. What helps you is refactoring. And what are maybe some most common patterns that you see? The common problems out there, the two most common, are illegible code and spooky action at a distance. And both of those come from the way that companies grow, right? It's that the code used to be within one team and then effectively split between a couple of teams. And so what was a local obvious interaction became a foreign, unexpected, unknown interaction. Right. And so the code is now filled with all of those. And I make one change over here and I break that team. Spooky action at a distance. Right. And then the other is similarly, like I've got a set of code. Um, it has grown and evolved over time. It started out nice and neat. Thinking of one at Microsoft that started out with a clear definition, small function. It was about uh, 30 lines of code, very clearly did exactly one thing. And then Every little feature and functionality that people needed to add turned out to also add something in there because this was doing input handling. And so when we came to start really working on it, they had made one shift to take it from 30,000 lines of code. They'd successfully split it to two near identical copies that were 22,000 lines of code each <laughs> and made long jump calls back and forth between the bodies of the two methods. Like it was it's that gnarly that you often have that sort of just completely illegible code and trying to figure out what to do and how to read it. And so we have specific techniques to help with those. The, for the illegible code, it's read by refactoring. It's 
you cannot read 30,000 lines of long jump direct C low level code. It's, it's illogical. But if you start identifying blocks that don't have any go-tos and aren't crazy and you extract them and you give them a name, <laughs> right? And you start working through the naming as a process sequence, you can start having insights one at a time and recording them back in the code where they help you have the next insight, right? And so that gets you iteratively towards legible code. And it allows you to spread understanding code over as long a period as you need. Like you can understand the part you need to change and hide the rest and understand a little bit of it next time you need to. So that's for illegible code. And then for spooky action at a distance, um, the key is first to solve the illegible code problem. People often don't. <laughs> um, once you do that, you've started to do a lot of the chunking. And so now it's often about collecting problems or collecting uh, things. And so you'll have chunks that have been pulled out over here and chunks that have been pulled out over there on that team. And you need to sort of trade some chunks. I need to hand some to you. You need to hand some to me. Uh, but because they're chunked from the process of, of naming as a process and, and getting them understood, uh, we can hand them back and forth and we can simplify that API boundary. And as we simplify that and we start going towards clearer architectures like hexagonal architecture or um, name is vanishing for me, uh, either pure functions or the other one whose name is gone. I don't know, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, the, those simpler approaches uh, tend to, to unify and eliminate a lot of the, the spooky actions. You have been in the industry for a very long time. You know that there are like seasons of yeah. um, hypes and then something matures and then everything, you know, kind of a lot of people tend to look at that shiny new thing. <laughs> to be very concrete, I'm talking about like microservices then that kind of architecture. As you were talking about this split that happens, there is like maybe we can do a bit of a pattern matching there. That, you know, some people would want to own the realm of the code and then, you know, interfacing with other people is defined and those services are separate. And um, I hear a lot of people very being very attracted, you know, to moving in that pattern. And um, it's um, not for me to judge, but <laughs> in a lot of situations, that's maybe not the first next step that you need to do. You have that monolith that suffers from maybe many of the things that you have been talking about and generally team and, and so on. Are you seeing those patterns? Are you seeing some, you know, good approaches to doing that transformation in some teams? The team that comes up with the new shiny technical uh, innovation, whatever it is, has in every season been a team that already had not just mastered the previous ones, their code base already had it. You know, the teams that, that created continuous deployment, they were all ones that you went and talked to them and they didn't have bugs. So when they were talking about testing in production, of course it wasn't about correctness. They'd already solved all the correctness issues, right? They just didn't have any of correctness bugs ever get towards production, like not even really get to QA. So they could eliminate a lot of those steps and, and really do the testing in production as an exploration with the customer. Um, but then it started getting picked up by people who still had a ton of bugs. Um, and so then they get corrupt invalid data because uh, the bugs have more impact on the, on the customer behavior than, than the, the thing they're trying and all those sorts of issues. And similarly, I see in microservices where the teams that invented microservices and were doing those already had really good, high cohesion, well-decoupled 
code bases, where those code bases were reflected in clean object boundaries, clean method boundaries, small methods, uh, tiny libraries, good relationships between the teams and the codes that they worked on so that most code was touched by a very small number of teams and so on. And so then what they were doing was they were bringing in ownership to production and let's just let's take this from being compiled in library to being a service that you run and switch the API. Brilliant. Works wonderfully in that context. Most of us aren't in that context. And so all the new hype fashions are always built assuming the context that really is the market leader. And the first thing that we all need to recognize is that if we are the market leader with our customers, we can almost guarantee we are not the market leader in our technology. Everyone wants to say that they are the best technical company out there, that they have the smartest people, that they have the best engineering culture, that they have some of the best code base. And the truth is, none of us do. Even the people who are the best are only in one or two ways, and in other ways, they're not, right? Uh, We all have these flaws. And until we are really able to humbly see that and accept that those are the changes, the things that are holding us back, we can't just go adopt the new shiny. We have to address those flaws. And the good news is you will get there. And in truth, 95% of the value comes from those basic first steps. Where can people find more about your work? I recommend follow on Twitter, uh, at Dig Deep Roots, uh, is my company that we do this sort of thing. Also, digdeeproots.com uh, is our, our site. Uh, we do that. You can also follow me personally on Twitter uh, at Arlo Belshi or either my company or I on LinkedIn. Uh, So those are the ways to get the ongoing regular sorts of things. Uh, We've also got, uh, I've also got just a bunch of talks that I've given at various conferences that are scattered all over YouTube owned by all those talks, but you can usually search my name and find a variety of different things. And we've got YouTube channel that we're putting together. You can also subscribe to our newsletter. Amazing. Thank you, Arlo, so much. Thank you very much. Microservices architecture is all the rage these days. But do you know what it really means and how to implement it to empower your teams to make the best decision for the problem at hand? On the Semaphore blog, you can learn about microservices and how to take advantage of features like test reports, on a repo, and Docker support to build, test, and deploy your microservice application at scale. Head over to semaphoreci.com blog for more information. A happy 